Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershank. Today I'm speaking with Per Byland. Per is the Assistant Professor of Entrepreneurship and Records Johnson Professor of Free Enterprise in the School of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. He's also a fellow at the Mises Institute and Associate Fellow of the Ratio Institute in Stockholm. We talked about the School of Austrian Economics, the centrality of the price mechanism, the theory of the business cycle, the so-called socialist calculation debate, and the ripple effects of lockdowns on the economy. Now, without further ado, I give you Per Byland. Welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Per Byland. Per is the Assistant Professor of Entrepreneurship and Records Johnson Professor of Free Enterprise in the School of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. He's also a fellow at the Mises Institute and Associate Fellow of the Ratio Institute in Stockholm. He's the author of a couple of books, The Problem of Production and New Theory of the Firm, and the seen, the unseen, and the unrealized, how regulations affect our everyday lives. Pear, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, and just to give a little bit of background um, for the listeners here, you and I actually came into contact a little bit serendipitously. We got into a little bit of an argument. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a, it was a good-spirited argument, I'll say that. Um, uh, concerning a post that you had you had made, and I had commented on um, regarding, uh, I guess the uh, the status of, of patents in, in the United States, intellectual property more generally, and and you had some interesting dis- things to say to me, things that I had actually never heard before, coming from a, a family of patent attorneys who necessarily have a vested interest in patents, uh, in, in terms of your. Au- opposition to, to their interference in the market. Um, and I found your arguments to be um, something novel and also quite interesting and something that I, I don't think I understood uh, entirely properly from, from our discussions on Twitter. It's a little bit of a limited medium in that sense. Um, and so I, I, I was prompted to invite you onto the show after I uh, took a look at your profile, I took a look at your personal website. I saw that you uh, were in heavily involved in the school, the Austrian School of Economics, and I thought it would be useful for the audience to sort of bring that perspective into the show. We haven't had anyone um, coming from a business school or with a specific focus on entrepreneurship and Austrian economics, so I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. Yeah, I mean, the, and, and the, the discussion... I mean, I use Twitter in exactly that way. I discuss with people and I, I post things, sometimes um, a little provocative, just to start a debate, and and then I discuss people and I comment on some some things, of course, as well. But I use it mostly as a platform for being sort of a public scholar, because uh, mm-hmm. I see I think that being a, a professor, sure, you're teaching in the classroom and you're producing a lot of research that no one will ever read. Um, but other than that, I think it's really your role when you have sort of accumulated this really, really specialized but really deep expertise in some area. It's 
it's really your responsibility to share what you have learned. It's not necessarily correct. I mean, as we know, research, we're learning more all the time and and we're making progress and we're sort of letting old uh, ideas that turn out to be wrong, uh, we, we just leave them behind. So we're always uh, improving and mm-hmm. progressing. But someone who has studied something for a long time and, and really gone through the the depths of the issue should share more of what they know i mean which is sort of weird too because a lot of the time on twitter which is an awesome sort of democratizing tool since everybody gets a voice if they want to uh i very often met with the argument quote unquote that you should know better as a professor Mm. Which is it's funny in in the sense because I am a professor because I know better about certain things, not everything, of course, but very very specialized things. But how is that an argument against someone that oh you have so much expertise that you should know better? That's also very strange to me. But it, it's sort of fun. I I like the the ongoing discourse on Twitter with, with people like yourself, people I've never met before and people with different opinions and different perspectives. And I can share what I know and they share what they know. And then either we agree on something or we disagree. It doesn't really matter, but we both learn hopefully. Yeah. Well, that is interesting that you said that about, um, I guess the, the inside perspective from it, from within academia that, uh, many, many professors, seem to have this almost defensive posture uh, with regard to talking about their research in public and engaging with the public more generally. Um, what, what do you think is, is, is the cause of that? I mean, I know some of it is just a little bit of uh, frustration, obviously, with the way in which their, their perspectives or their theories might get ris- misinterpreted or mischaracterized. Um, but uh, you're, you're absolutely correct there. I mean, um, the, the, the truest role of the professor is to teach, and that's not just teaching in the strict sense of the classroom, but I guess teaching as a, as a way of life. Um, why, do you, why do you think that uh, certain, certain uh, professors or uh, instructors seem hesitant to share their views more in public? Well, I think there are many components uh, to why that is the case. I mean, one is simply that it's really hard to communicate something that you know a lot about to someone who might not know even a fraction of that. I mean, it's sort of a a curse of knowledge. I mean, how do you make yourself understood? And if you simplify too much, you're really introducing errors. I mean, from your own very detailed, specific knowledge point of view. Uh, And... If you're used to doing research, you can't really introduce errors. So, so mm. you don't want to do that, right? Um, it's also, I think, because many professors are introverts, so it's it's hard to inter- interact with people. And I, I'm a, sort of a, uh, an introvert myself, so so I can understand that. I mean, public speaking in the classroom, it's sort of okay because that's a, a protected environment. But if you go out and, I mean in the media or Twitter or whatever. It's very different. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's encouraged within the academia either. And actually it might hurt you 
Because if you right. say things and you get a following and and you you say something that someone either misinterprets or takes out of its context or, or it's a provocative view. And I mean, as a specialist in some very specific issue, you tend to develop views that people who are not specialists do not have, right? So mm-hmm. immediately you're sort of an outsider. But if you piss someone off, um, then that might hurt your career. And as a professor, right. you don't have all that many uh, potential employers. Right? Mm-hmm. And you're probably over-educated for a lot of jobs too. <laughs> so you're sort yeah. of a mis- misfit in the, in the job market, right? So yeah. if you lose your job, you're screwed. Right, right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, the curse of specialization is just sort of a problem that we deal with uh, with generally in, in the modern modern age, as well as, uh, you know, within academia itself, in that um, there just seems to be a, a growing breakdown of the ability uh, for people to communicate across disciplines as um, sort of the, um, the, uh, the tree of knowledge grows into ever more sort of narrow and specified pathways. And we're getting fewer and fewer, um, I guess, uh, uh, Renaissance men in in the sense of uh, academics who are sort of polymathic and able to sort of very easily um, and fluidly shift between different fields and incorporate, you know, multiple uh, areas of broad knowledge with, with, with enough specificity to not lose that accuracy that you were talking about. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, specialization, it's, it's an enormous power, both in, in production and in thinking and, and learning and, and whatnot else, but it should be combined also with integration, right? So, or cross pollination or whatever you want to call it, right? That if you're just specializing and you just go on and you just follow that tangent forever and you don't really interact with anybody else, then you might go astray. You might develop theories and, and knowledge, perhaps even, that doesn't go well with other pieces of knowledge. But you need to combine it. I mean, those are all pieces of the of the grand puzzle, so you need to put them together, right? And I think what, what scholars did before, they did um, develop a specialization, but they also combined it. So they, they did try to specialize, but also do the polymath thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, institutionally speaking, that's discouraged because you can't really publish uh, interdisciplinary research unless you do it as a book. And the book is not really, uh, it doesn't really count for much in academia. It's only peer-reviewed research that counts, uh, which means that the more specialized you are, the more of a top scholar in that narrow specialization you are, right? And that's uh, th- that's that's how you gain, and that's yeah. how you be- become someone. So it, taking a step back and combining ideas, that's not really where academia is heading, unfortunately. I mean, it should go in that direction, too. So I think they should go back and forth. I mean, specialize more, and then take a step back and integrate, and then specialize even further. But sort of contrasting with other specializations and learn from them too. Mm -hmm. Well, and what's interesting about you, your profile specifically, is that you're a professor of entrepreneurship, uh, which is almost um, by definition not a specialized area of study. Um, Entrepreneurs (laughs) are expected to be generalists. Um, 
And, um, I, I, I want to just preface this by saying, um, you know, you, you didn't, uh, necessarily take the most straightforward path into academia. As far as I understand it, you actually, uh, have experience properly in, um, in, in starting multiple companies before this. Is that, that's correct? Yeah, I have several, uh, careers, um, mm. in different countries too. Uh, and part of it was that I didn't know what, where to go or what to do. So, I mean, in a sense, I'm back where I started because mm. I started out in a business school in Sweden, where I'm from, um, wanting to be, I don't know why, but I was sort of aiming to become like, I don't know, top level management or something like that in a big company would be cool. I didn't know anything about it, of course, uh, which is the case for anyone who's 18 and wants mm-hmm. to go to college, right? Uh, we all want to go to Goldman Sachs or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we want to be the the successful one, right? <laughs> so I guess that that's sort of where, where I was heading to. Uh, and I guess I was lucky in a sense because I didn't get into that the top program that I, I was sort of gunning for. Instead, I got into a, a, another program that combined computer science or informatics, which sort of computer science for business, if you like, mm-hmm. um, with business. So it was half and half. So you, I guess you could call it a, a double major to use American terms, but it, it doesn't really look like that in Sweden. But uh, So I pursued that and happened to uh, get a degree and even a master's degree in informatics in 99, which was just when the dot-com bubble was about to burst. So I got a, a career first in systems development um, and IT and from there business consulting. And on the side, I, I attempted uh, to start businesses. And I had done that already uh, in, in high school uh, mm-hmm. through one of those well, sort of, sort of educational programs, where, but it's hands-on where you actually do start a business and you, you try it out. But, I mean, I, I, I sort of learned, the, learned how to fail fast, which is also <laughs> what we teach in entrepreneurship, that if you are going to fail, fail fast before it costs you too much, right? Right, iterate. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't iterate as much as I failed once and then <laughs> moved on. Mm. Uh, but because these were side projects, right? So, okay. Uh, but, I mean, I, I also had a sort of a career in politics. I was elected for office in Sweden. Mm-hmm. I did 10 years in politics. Wow. Um, I, I lived in Taiwan for a while and and, and studied Chinese and, and taught English to businesses there. Uh, and then uh, on the side, I got a master's in political science because I was interested in political theory. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ended up in the U.S. in entrepreneurship is actually because I was not able to get into a Ph.D. program in political science. And the reason is that, that there are not very many students accepted to Ph.D. programs in Sweden because they're, they're fully paid positions. So they're basically a pre-faculty position. Okay. So they're not, they're not very many. Uh, and I think the, I applied like three years straight or something to all universities in Sweden. The best year they had, they advertised for four people. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's really hard to get in and being interested in political theory, which was sort, sort of a, a sub-discipline that is not very hot <laughs> and doesn't get it a lot of funding. It was not, not very easy at all. And then I got uh, an opportunity through the Mises Institute that you mentioned um, I got in touch with a professor 
through them at the University of Missouri, and he suggested getting a PhD in, in economics, which I had not really studied much at all. Uh, but he had funding, and he could he would advise my dissertation and so forth. So, so I, I I got into that program and moved to Missouri from from south South Sweden, mm-hmm. and started studying economics. And from there, I sort of transitioned because of my interests to the business school, and managed to eventually, after a few years, get a, a real faculty position in entrepreneurship. So, I mean, I, you're, you're right that it's definitely not a straight path, but it's even less straight than my CV makes it appear. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hold my, uh, my bachelor's in political theory, so I can definitely attest to the fact that it is a, a somewhat marginal field um, just in general. I remember a few years ago when I was uh, on, uh, starting to really get into Twitter, I was looking for other political theorists, and you can hardly find any. Um, at least any that are talking in public, it's 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 quite um it's quite unusual. Uh, it, political science is huge, especially even in the United, especially in the United States. There are tons and tons of political science majors, um, but oftentimes they're more interested in international relations or um, looking at uh, policy or even you know cultural politics here here in the US is pretty popular so uh, there aren't a lot of um, of strict political theorists these days yeah exactly and i mean also in political theory you have either the political theory historicists looking at political theory the way it was was uh, developed before and reading Locke and Hobbes and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you have those developing new arguments and so forth. And and those new arguments, whether or not they're based on sort of the classics, they too are so specialized. So what are you going to do on Twitter with those arguments? Right? Yeah. They have to find someone else who's, who's equally a nerd, right, and talk. Right. Yeah. I, I come from that more, um, I guess, traditional uh, school of political theory. In my program, we uh, start with the ancient Greeks. Uh, we look at, you know, Athenian democracy, and then we move into the Roman Republic and on through into the Renaissance, into the Enlightenment, and we sort of top it all off uh, with with these sort of counter-Enlightenment thinkers, and then your program kind of stops there. And one of my motivations for starting this podcast was actually to try to talk with other academics, people outside of political theory, to start formulating some some theories about politics that are a little bit more um, updated, but also are, are incorporating knowledge from other fields because it tends to sort of uh, just sort of get drowned in, in political philosophy. Um, and I, I feel like in the 21st century, with all of the advances specifically in the sciences uh, and also in the social sciences um, that we've had in the last 150 years, uh, it doesn't make sense to to leave political theory isolated to political philosophy. Yeah, you're right, and I, I think there's so much we can learn from all those classical works too. And I'm I'm doing sort of a similar thing in history of economic thought, mm-hmm. um, where, I mean, economics as a as a discipline has quarter of a millennium of theorizing behind it. So. Of course, there is plenty we can learn from it. Unfortunately, modern economics is it's basically math or statistics. Mm. Um, and you, you may know, actually, one of my professors, I, uh, I learned under um, uh, Ross Emmett, 
Yeah, I do know him. Yeah. Yeah, he's history of history of economics professor. He used to teach at the James Madison School at Michigan State, and that's where um, where I took a couple of classes with him. And I think he's now at Arizona State. Um, but uh, I, I noticed that you were connected with him on Twitter, so I thought maybe you might know each other. Yeah, I know him well, and he's one of those uh, great ones in history of economic thought. But I mean, you, you can hardly make a career in that because history of economic thought is not really okay in any economics department anymore because <clears throat> you don't do math and you don't publish in the standard journals. Mm. So, so it, basically, it's a waste of space and a waste of money to hire someone who's specializing in that. Because uh, mm-hmm. economists are supposed to either do mathematical f- proofs of theorems or to uh, analyze policy. That's that's pretty much what economists do nowadays. Whereas going back to all these older thinkers, like I mean, Adam Smith or whoever, they're talking about a, a theory of society, right? But focusing on how the economy works and how the market works and production and, and where wealth comes from and, and issues like that, but still embedding that in sort of a theory of society and the theory of ethics and, and trying to fit all those pieces together, right? And, and modern economics does not do that at all. Modern economics has forgotten about its own great scholars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's, uh, let's get, let's get a little bit into, into economic theory a bit here. Um, I, like I said in the beginning of this, I, I wanted to have you on to talk about Austrian economics. It's not, uh, at least from my view, a very popular uh, school of thought in economics these days, uh, especially with just sort of the growth of of big government and the way that um, most of the nation states seem to be progressing these days. Uh, it's almost uh, people almost take it for granted that it's accepted that the government is just going to keep growing in size and it's going to keep. Uh, intervening more and more in our lives and taking a larger role in, in the economy. Um, so I, I want to start start off that discussion by first asking you, how did you first get into Austrian economics and what, what attracted you to that area of, of the field? Well, I think I got into Austrian economics the way most people do, um, which is sort of sad because I, I wish more people could find it on its own merits. Um, but Austrian economics theorizes, uh, well, what I would call properly, that is, theorizes first on how a market that is not uh, distorted or manipulated or restricted in any, any way, but the market by itself, how that would work, and mm-hmm. then add uh, different influences on that system and see how does that change the outcome and how does that change the structure and so forth, right? So in that sense, it's a free market economics. Uh, and I think any proper theory must start with all the, without all those influences that are there in, in the empirical real world, right? So, um, uh, so I found it through, through politics, through adopting more and more of a free market view myself, policy-wise, Mm-hmm. And that from there, I, I then you immediately get exposed to people like Milton Friedman and others in the sort of Chicago school. Mm-hmm. And then there is a small minority uh, libertarians who have different arguments uh, still for 
free markets, but from a different perspective, and they come at it from a different angle. Uh, and those are the Austrians. So, and then you you usually get a, um, get introduced to Hayek because he got yep. the, a Nobel Prize, right? So, and you read probably Road to Serfdom, which is not at all an economics work, but so you read that and you go, hmm, that actually makes some sense. And then you start digging into what Austrians actually say in terms of economic theorizing. So unfortunately, I would say that that's, that's how most people would find Austrian economics, through um, sort of a, a political conviction, uh, libertarianism usually. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that sort of hurts the school because it's a, it's a proper school of economic thought. So it doesn't have to be so strongly linked to politics, but unfortunately it is. Right. Well, so I, I don't actually have a ton of familiarity personally with the theories of Austrian economics. I mean, I know who Milton Friedman is and I know Hayek and um, the Mises Institute and so forth. So I'm somewhat familiar with kind of the big names, but uh, to me, What's interesting about the Austrian school is that it really seems to be trying to reason about the economy from a position of first principles. So this idea of, you know, let's let's look at the market isolated from all these external influences first and then see how we would expect it to respond um, to various additional inputs that seems very attractive to me, and it actually – it's very similar in many ways to the way that physicists uh, try to reason about, say, you know, the origins of, of, of the universe or our physical laws. Um, do you see that, that parallel? I do, yeah. Uh, it, it's not at all close to how physicists do with empirical experiments and measuring and stuff like that. But with reasoning, where does the universe come from and, and stuff like that that you can't measure, then mm. it's absolutely the same. Because uh, Austrian economics is a purely deductive system of theory. So it, it does start with first principles. Like I say, it even goes back to uh, what is an action and sort of an assumption about uh, how – how it is that, well, about human nature in a sense, and that action means that we are trying intentionally, consciously to attain a different state. Mm. Uh, and, and we identify what our options are, what the different types of outcomes uh, that we can strive for, what means we have available to get there. And then we make a choice based off of our subjective evaluation of how those are going to be of satisfactory to, to us, how, how we are basically benefiting emotionally, if, if you will, uh, from all these different states compared to where we are at right now. So any action would be purposeful behavior, uh, and it would necessarily be motivated um, by, by subjective valuation of different outcomes that we can imagine and that we can, uh, that we probably expect will happen, but Plenty of uncertainty, plenty of error, plenty of imperfect information and all this stuff. So it, it basically it, it assumes everything that economics does not. Because if you remember from college, when you take the principles courses, the assumption is perfect information and no transaction costs and all this stuff, right? And then 
and then you get to where supply and demand meet, and then you have your model, and then you can shift the curves back and forth, right? Uh, Austrian economics begins in a very different place with, okay, human nature, we act because we want, we, we're, we're not satisfied, right? So we want to achieve something that we value for whatever reason. We can be deluded, we can be wrong, it doesn't really matter, but we act because we believe we, we want something and because we believe we can attain it. And then from there, uh, economic laws are derived. So it uses a very different method than modern economics, where, uh, well, not necessarily mathematical theory, but but empirical uh, research in general, where you formulate a hypothesis and then you collect data and you test it and you just say, oh, oops, that wasn't it because I can't support the hypothesis, right? Whereas Austrian economics, economic theory is purely the deductive system derived from that concept of action. So mm. it's, it's, it's sort of a, a purely logical exercise course, still guided by what we see around us, because we can we can logically derive truths about things that are simply not real too. But there's no point in doing that, right? But all those um, explanations that Austrian economics uh, provides are really those that are just logically derived from the concept of action. Right. So it's starting with the assumption that we are goal-oriented agents, and that right. we're always sort of balancing, you know, proximal goals with, with more distant goals and, and the need for, you know, resource resources in the short term versus our long-term, um, viability and so forth. Uh, I think one of the core issues, at least that I see in political discourse these days is that people tend to assume or mischaracterize, uh, this kind of economic thought as, uh, some kind of, of of anarchism, or um, or that you know there's no or, or that they're sort of like in denial that there could be any kind of market failures. Uh, I I I have an intuition that that you you would disagree with both of those statements that that you do acknowledge market failures in certain cases and that you're not a pure anarchist. Can you elaborate a little bit on those two points? Well, I'm not sure if anarchy follows from economic thought or not. I mean, that's, that would be more of a political situation. But it, uh, and it, well, if you go, go back to where Austrian economics comes from, the, the founder, Karl Menger, at the University of Vienna in the 1870s, mm-hmm. which is why it's called Austrian economics, was a way of the Germans basically to sort of try to dismiss this theory because it was just Austria. It was pure, wasn't proper Germany, right? That's where the name comes from. Oh, um, interesting. So they've reappropriated their own uh, <laughs> insult. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's not a very good name because everybody thinks that you're studying the economics of Austria, which is not very interesting, perhaps. Um, but the first couple of generations of Austrian theorists, they were pretty much social democrats in their political views but they 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 had this sort of methodological approach to studying the economy saying that well the economy obviously works in a certain way there's some kind of order to it even though it's not planned mm-hmm. so where does that come from well we can figure that out because we know this about ourselves so basically through introspection what does it mean for me to act and why do i act okay well that's that's sort of the um, 
the action theorem, right? That we act uh, purposefully. And, and then from there, we can figure out all this stuff and you realize, wait a minute, then that's why we exchange because we want to get something of greater value than the value we give up, right? And the same must be true for the other person. That what they're giving us, they must value less than what they're getting in return because otherwise, why would they do it? Mm -hmm. Then obviously, an, any voluntary exchange would be to both parties' benefit. There can be no other way, right? Whereas other modern economics would talk about indifference and, and things like that, and, and they would calculate dollar amounts and all this stuff. Um, and Austrians would just say, no, well, that's, that's a subjective valuation. You, you can't put a number to it, and you can't compare it between people either. It's just a... It's a ranking that those individuals have, and they happen to have the opposite ranking with respect to those goods that they are exchanging, whether it's money for a good or two goods for each other or whatever it is, right? Mm. But from this then, I mean, going to uh, market failure, that was your question. Yes. It's it's sort of a, a strange question because market failure, the way it's defined, it's basically that the outcome is not the maximizing outcome as per uh, modern economics models based on some utility right and 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 that maximizing outcome is also based on the model with perfect information okay so that makes it a little hard to say that there are such things as market failures because in some formal sense everything would be a market failure because no one has perfect information mm. right so we're not society of gods because there, there, there would be no market failures. But that also doesn't make any sense to talk about failure, because that sort of implies that we can fix it, right? right. But if, if we don't have perfect information, and if we all subjectively value all these different alternatives that we see ourselves, but those are closed sets, right? There are options that we might not be aware of. Then and we can't compare between different people. Then why does it? We can't fix such an error, and that error is not really relevant either. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, so uh, Austrians differ from other economists by saying that the economy is not simply a system that is in equilibrium or out of equilibrium. It's it's a process, right? So, it it progresses by satisfying wants, by figuring out new ways of producing things, by figuring out new things to produce and so forth, right? So in some sense, it's a continuous process towards better well-being for everyone, because that's why we act, right? So the end point would be no action at all, because then we're fully satisfied with everything. And that's sort of where we're tending and where we're striving to get. We're never going to get there, of course, but... But in this process, yeah, of course, there are plenty of things that could be optimized and that could be better. But that goes back to what you said before about different time horizons, too, right? That if we maximize everything exactly now in the present, that mm -hmm. means that we're going to dedicate resources that could provide us with greater value if we invested them for the future instead, right? So even maximizing the present would be imperfect, because right? mm. it, it, it would make us worse off in the future. So with all of these things combined, I mean, the, we can't really say anything about the system overall other than does it work as well as it could and what are the impacts of all these other influences on it? I mean, if there's distortion, 
that means that resources are going to be put to uses that are worse than they otherwise would be put to. Right, so we can we can say that, but not a whole lot more. Okay, so that's a that's a good starting point. Um, so obviously, everyone is always acting within a market under, uh, as you said, imperfect knowledge with high levels of uncertainty. Um, and I think it's interesting that you have also this background in informatics because uh, it can almost be characterized as as the market is. And, and correct me if this is not your view, but um, as the market is sort of a, a performing a, a kind of computation and we see the output of that computation in the form of the price function, um, is, that a, is that a correct characterization? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that is, that is, that is good because that strikes at the very core. I mean, we haven't really talked about the, the history of the school, but uh, Austrian economics was one of three mainstreams of, Aust- of uh, economic thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, it's a hundred years ago, but but still, uh, with different approaches, but similar in many ways, of course. Um, and Austrians have started many of the really big debates, sort of idea-based or or value-based debates in in economics. And one of those was the so-called socialist calculation debate which lasted for some 30 years in economics with really smart people debating back and forth. And uh, it was started by, by Ludwig von Mises um, uh, publishing an article where he claimed that a socialist economy, meaning the common ownership of all means of production, is yes. impossible. Uh, and what he meant by that was 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 simply that, well, if the point of the economy is to satisfy consumers' own wants as much as possible, there's no way of doing that from a central planner's point of view. The central planner, first of all, cannot know what people want and also cannot know how strongly they want it. So the only way of figuring out how to use specific resources in the economy is to let entrepreneurs compete with each other and sort of using their own, their visions for what they think that they will be able to sell to consumers because production always takes time, right? So the resources you buy now will hopefully give you a return in the future sometime. Mm-hmm. So by letting them compete, they will thereby determine market prices for those factors of production. So it doesn't matter if those are cars or factories or or steel or, or whatever it is they're using, but, but they're sort of bidding against each other and whoever is, pays the highest price gets the resource, right? And many are excluded and they choose different means because it's too, no, steel is too expensive, so I'm going to use this other metal in, instead, which is less expensive. Well, that's exactly what we want them to do, right? We want them to maximize the value output uh, and minimize the cost of it. Right? So entrepreneurs as a group, they determine all these prices, and entrepreneurs individually respond to those prices. Right? So there's this ongoing bidding for the resources that are always scarce. We could always use more resources. Right? We could always produce more goods, produce more convenience, more entertainment, or whatever. But we need to figure out how to do that uh, to make, produce as much value as possible for consumers. 
So uh, entrepreneurs bid against each other, determine those prices, and any individual entrepreneur will say, oh, I think this would be a great idea if consumers really want to have, uh, say, a smartphone, Steve Jobs said. Okay, so how, how, can, how valuable would that be? Well, I think they might be able to pay this much for it. So we need to put that together with all, that, all those features that I envision or imagine that we can, we can do. And then we need to figure out what materials and how to produce it, how many and all that stuff, right? And that's based off of what the market prices are for those goods, for plastic, for, for different types of metals, for uh, CPUs and, and memory and whatever else you have in, in a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. So entrepreneurs make these calculations in every project based off of what do I think I can charge for this pro product that I'm envisioning and how many can I sell? And then comparing that to what prices do I have to pay for all those inputs that I need, which are at the same time determined by all these entrepreneurs bidding for those, those inputs. So in that set, sense, the whole economy and all of our sort of combined resources are directed towards where all these entrepreneurs together believe that they would do most good for consumers. right? But if that is the goal to produce as much value as possible for consumers, then one central planning committee or one guy or whatever has no idea, right? Because he, right. he, can, he can determine prices for all those goods and he can say that, oh, we need iPhones or whatever, but he has no clue. So you need this, what, what Mises referred to as a division of intellectual labor, which is what sort of entrepreneurs uh, imagining what they can produce and, and how it will satisfy consumers and so forth. Right? So, mm. so the price mechanism is, is central here, right? both in how the price is determined and how it is then used by individual actors. Right. So I think one of the common criticisms that I would like to level here um, that gets brought up whenever anyone articulates this, uh, this theory is the issue, and I know this is not an empirical issue, but it is a normative one, which is issues of economic justice. People always bring up, well, okay, but if we just leave everything to be determined by the actions of entrepreneurs who are sort of self-interested or acting on behalf of the firms that they're running, et cetera, then you have a problem with sort of entrenched interests or uh, people being unfairly, you know, blocked out of the market, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, there are ways in which non-governmental actors can also manipulate market forces. How, how do you respond to these claims of economic injustice? Well, I mean, the, the short answer is that there, there is no perfect system. Okay. Right. So, so the the first thing we need to do is is throw that idea out because we we cannot ever have a system that is is perfect in in some sense because the world is not perfect, right? And we the, the question is uh, how do how do we make as much as possible out of what we have? Um, and the the answer is probably not to have a central planner make all the decisions because that means we're going to get a lot of waste and we're going to produce a lot of things that people don't actually want. But I'm trying I'm trying to get away from the central planning question. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to sure. more more deal with the issue of 
uh, people claim, well, okay, maybe we don't want to have a central planning committee who's doling out goods and services, uh, on, you know, based on some determination that they make of who, who, who's needs it or who is more deserving. But there are always sort of these, uh, I guess, more lighter versions of this argument, which have to do with like, oh, well, there needs to be some kind of redistrib- redistributive scheme in the form of taxing mm-hmm. or um, uh, subsidies, et cetera, that, that provide, you know, some sort of, um, uh, carving out of space for, for some imagined, or in in many cases, real group of people who may not be in, in the most optimal position to, um, to be, to be taking economic action. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I mean, it's been sort of the, what, what economists since what, before Adam Smith have talked about is that, well, there's value creation and there's also the value distribution, right? So you cannot distribute value before you create it. Mm. And, and that's the big problem. And if you start talking about distribution or redistribution and say, but there is so much or this guy is so rich, so let's just take from him. Well, it was that wealth was created first, and that wealth will need to be recreated too. So if you take away, if you say that, oh, let's take 50% of everybody's profits all the time uh, and, and use that as, as tax or whatever. Green well, New Deal. <laughs> well, for instance, I mean, but that yeah. means that you're actually adding burden to those who are striving for profit, right? So you're, you're limiting the success rate because you have to get so much higher returns on every project to be successful, which means fewer are going to decide to actually go ahead and do it, which probably means the outcome is not going to be even close to as good as it could have been. Right? So the question is, do we let uh, this, all this value creation happen and then tinker with it, or even better, let people uh, use their own funds and organize themselves and maybe have I don't know, charitable organizations or whatever to care for those who are uh, disadvantaged in, in some way. Um, and it, it sounds outlandish almost to, to put it like that today, but the reason is that the market today is so burdened by all these infractions and all these regulations and all these decrees and all this stuff that much of what we're seeing today in terms of unemployment of people being shut out um, people not being able to live off of their wage and and crap like this mm-hmm. um, those are not really market phenomena I mean, I know that Marx, for instance, theorized on the iron law of wages, that wages would be uh, bid down by capitalists until you could barely survive, and then they would just extract all the profits. But the issue is, is actually the reverse, because if you have a, a, a free market system where there are no uh, barriers to entry, no one has has raised any regulatory uh restrictions or, or whatnot else. You don't have to have a license to be a barber or, or all this stuff, right? That means that anyone can go into these markets if they're if you can make money off of it, and they can also get out of those markets. And the best 
most useful factor of production, to put it that way, is labor. Right? So labor is, first of all, necessary in any production. Labor can be used for all of these different things that we can't use machines for. And even machines have to be produced by labor. Mm-hmm. So it's the most useful one, and labor in the free market, the wage gets bid up to its value contribution, right? So, so the more productive you are, the more you make. So in a in a purely free market system, I mean, maybe we're getting too theoretical here, but wages would be much higher and the purchasing power of the of the money used would also be much higher so you, you would at the same time have higher incomes and lower prices so it's much less of a problem than we have made it in a sense mm. so so that so, would be one answer but but again it's, it's it's not a perfect system and i don't think there are any such perfect systems right right so well, i guess one of the things that I'm interested in here, though, is, is you know, we like to when, – when people are talking about this, especially in, in political terms, um, they always like to take the most extreme uh, example of what they view as, say, you know, uh, the egregiousness of, of the capitalist system. Um, let's just pick on, you know, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, right? We've got the richest man in the world. He's got this – you know, enormously successful um, company that he's created uh, and that he's obviously put in lots of labor. He's worked very hard to build and it's created, you know, uh, maybe perhaps uncountable um, amounts of value for consumers and and for everybody else that's benefiting from Amazon's uh, services. Um, But People will say, well, okay, it's it's one, it's unfair that this man who happens to be steering this giant ship is is compensated so stupendously for it. And, and two, it, it, there's also this uh, deeper argument, which is like, well, okay, but but the way that Amazon has built it, itself out with its um, you know with its economies of scale and network effects and so forth has actually been somewhat on the back of these sort of more public goods. For example, you know, the shipment of all, all of its products is happening across, and this is, this is just a, a stereotypical argument, but the, the, you know, the shipment of all of its products is happening across public roads, and you need all of this infrastructure and law enforcement and, and, and aspects of government that allow a system like Amazon to thrive without having um, insurmountable enforcement costs, for example. <clears throat> yeah, and I, and I would agree with most, with a lot of that actually. So okay. I, I don't I don't think that in a in a purely free market system, people tend to think that that would mean that you would have some trillionaires, and then everybody else would, well, desperately try to get jobs. I think it would be the other way around because you don't uh, benefit at all unless you actually contribute value, mm-hmm. and there are no. Um, barriers to entry either, which means there's always competition, right? So even if if Amazon is the only company doing this, they have to charge lower prices um, than, a, than monopoly theory says that they should, because otherwise someone else will enter, right? 
And, mm-hmm. and today, so I, I mean, in a in a free market system, I, I doubt that there would be many companies like these. I mean, there wouldn't be a, a huge Microsoft. There wouldn't be an Amazon and things like that. There would be much smaller, much more small scale solutions. And part of that is because what, what you said, that that in a sense, we're subsidizing them through infrastructure that is uh, paid through taxes. Um, so I think in a sense, we have exaggerated the economies of scale. I don't think they are as um, beneficial as they have been made, simply because now you can, I mean, to, to, get, to use an extreme example, you can say, that, oh, we need to produce this, this good, and everybody in the world will want it, so let's produce one big-ass factory in China and then put it on a ship and just ship it to everyone in the whole world around the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, you can do that because you don't have to bear all the costs of the infrastructure, of the environment, or whatever it is, all of those things, right? So just like the highway system here in the U.S., you can you can use that without paying for using it, right? There, right. There's taxes for trucks and whatnot else, but it wouldn't surprise me if we are, in fact, subsidizing um, transportation and, and, and logistics quite a bit that way, which means that you can have one big factory at one corner of the U.S. and then ship everywhere, whereas if they would bear the full cost of transportation, they would probably have num- a number of smaller factories, which means that you would also be able to um, differentiate your products more to local markets, so you don't have as as far-reaching uh, standardization as you do today, you would be able to uh, produce more for your, your local or regional um, customers, right? Um, and technology would be optimized differently, too. So because we have this system with, let's call it free, quote-unquote, infrastructure, it pays to have larger factories, which means investments into technology and research is in large-scale production, right? So, so uh, factories and all these machines are already optimized to producing as much as possible 24-7, rather than producing, say, I don't know, half of that or something like that, right? So, so one, one analogy would be that automobiles tend to work most efficiently, you get best gas mileage uh, and, and so forth, around 60, 65 miles an hour, right? So you can go for very long distances uh, at that speed. It is no uh, law of nature that that has to be the speed where they're optimized. It just happens to be, be that, well, it doesn't happen to be. These engines in cars are optimized for driving at that speed because the speed limit says that that's where people should drive, right? Mm. So had the speed limit instead said that, no, you can only drive 25 on all roads, then you would have much better gas mileage at 25. And if you would then go 65, well, that would cost you an arm and a leg in gas. Um, And the same thing if, if the speed limits had said 150, then car manufacturers would have produced engines that are optimized for that speed, right? So the same thing goes with production technology, that mm. factories are optimized for these rather insane production quantities because the economies of scale have been exaggerated through free infrastructure, right? So mm. 
the, the problem here is that there are so many variables, right, uh, in the economy that if you change one thing, that, that will have ripple effects and change many other things too. So you have to, that's what Austrians do really well, I think, in general. They, they can tweak one variable sort of in their minds or on paper uh, and then walk through the logic. This will lead to this other change, which in turn will lead to this other change, depending on people's choices, of course. But then we can see how this happens and not instantaneously, as is the case in mathematical modeling, where you just one change and then bam, everything changes, but rather it happens temporally. So one change and then the other change and then another change, right? So Austrians are known for, say, business cycle theory and monetary policy and things like that to talk about uh, how change happens in these in this sort of stepwise, stepwise manner, step by step, it, as ripple effects through the economy until everything adjusts to this new change. Mm -hmm. Whereas, whereas non-Austrians would simply, uh, well, they would use different numbers in their mathematical models, and that would have a different outcome all across the board at once. So there's a there's a time series where you're looking at second, third, fourth order effects, and so on. Right. And and then at the end of it, uh, are you uh, uh, is the the conclusion of running that model is um, some kind of equilibrium or a punctuated equilibrium? At least, obviously, things are always changing, so there's never a, a um, complete stillness. But um, that would be the opposite of an economy. Um, right. But you, you're right. I mean, it would would. It, it, would return to some form of order if nothing else changes, right? Mm -hmm. And the question is, what order would that be? Right. So uh, you 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 actually um, in your uh, in your book, the seen, unseen, and unrealized, you you characterize the economy as um, a, a, as an organism, right? To think of. Mm -hmm. Think of an economy as an organism, as a uh, an organically functioning entity, and rather than in, in purely mechanistic terms, uh, which would which would be in alignment with what we've been talking about, where you have this sort of um, holistic ecosystem where everything is sort of going back and forth, as as in uh, as in our biological world, um, and. Uh, one of the questions that I had for you, just because it's timely at the moment, is uh, obviously here in the United States, everything is shut down at the moment, um, at least in most places, especially in Michigan, um, which is where I am. And, um, and I've been trying to communicate to people that when we shut down everything in the economy, it's not like a light switch where we turn everything off and then it just turns back on again when we decide to flip the switch that it actually is more in alignment with what you're saying in your in your book, that it, it follows more more like an organism, um, and, and that uh, you know there's a there's just a complex, uh, almost unlimited number of inputs and the outputs that result from that. And so, it, when we restart the economy again, um, in whatever way that happens, whatever that means exactly, uh, it's going to take a little bit of time maybe a long time for things to, um, to start kicking back into, into something more like what we had before. What's your take on, on, on the current economic 
crisis that we're in? How do you think it will play out? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this is a very costly situation we're in. Um, and I mean, you're absolutely right. Many, many of these things where you sort of flip the switch and then it's off. Well, this is people's livelihood we're talking about. These are processes where you might not be able to stop them. So one example would be the supply chain for meat, for instance, where, yeah, you can you can stop meat packing or meat processing plants and say, okay, no more. Well, you have plenty of farmers with cattle. That right. cattle has to be slaughtered at some point before they get too old and, and, and the meat is not useful or, or whatever. And they are also paying for feed while the cattle is alive, right? So they have to do something with those. So if you just close the, the processing plants, the farmers at some point say, well, I'm just going to have to kill all my cows because I can't afford having those cows just keep eating, and they will be worth nothing later on anyway. So I'll just kill them all, and I'll just bury the corpses. Which is and what the, we see happening. There's exactly, all this right? complaints about people throwing away food and dumping milk down the drain and um, basically just cutting cutting their losses. Right. And the same thing is with oil, where, where people have been talking about how oil futures are trading at negative values, right? That that people will actually pay you to um, to uh, accept oil. Store it. And, yeah. And, right. And, and that's the exact reason, right? That they are pumping out oil uh, in deep sea drilling or whatnot else. And you can't just stop those processes but they also have no place to store them. So when people stop using gasoline, then where are you gonna? What are you gonna do with all this stuff? You can't pump it back into the oil wells. And <laughs> Put it also, back in the ground. Right, and you can't. You also can't stop stop the flow of oil out of those wells where you have already drilled it, because that's gonna completely undo your investment and maybe cause environmental damage like crazy and whatnot else. Right. So you have all these things. So you can't stop it. So we have to cover all these costs while at the same time what we've done is destroy these supply chains, right? Because many of these businesses that usually don't think about at all because they're, they're, they're producing services business to business, right? So they're part of a very extensive uh, advanced supply chain and they're one step of 150 before something reaches our plate at home or whatever. Right. So we don't think of them, and they might they they have hired a bunch of people and 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 they're really specialized, but we never heard of them. And we say, well, just flip the switch, and you can't work now because you're not essential. The governor would say, right? Well, that means that that supply chain will be incomplete, right? From from virgin land, in a sense, or just resources to the consumer, there is no uh, continuous activity anymore because that business is gone. So flipping the switch again, saying, okay, you can you can start up now, you can you can do your work again. That business might be gone. Right? And those investments might be somewhere else. Those the capital that they use, the machinery and things like that might have been sold to cover uh, the guy's losses when he couldn't run his business. Even if he has kept those uh, his employees were fired or were at home, and they have seen some other opportunities. So he can't hire the same people, so he has to hire someone else, and then he has to train them. 
which is a high cost because it's a specialized job. Right? So, so you see all of these huge frictions that stand in the way. The question then for this guy is, okay, so I don't have all the resources anymore that I used to have, so I have to get those back. I can't rehire the people I employed before who were really good at their jobs. I need to train new people. And then I'm not sure really about my relationship with the suppliers because I, I didn't pay them when they flipped the switch because I couldn't. So they don't hate, they don't like me anymore. They don't trust me anymore. Okay, so would you start that business again? I mean, the, the, the risk and the cost is much higher now restarting it than it was starting it from the beginning. Right? So mm -hmm. it, that might not make any sense at all to do this. And this is sort of a... a a problem we have imposed on ourselves or on our economy just by imagining that we can flip a switch. But the problem is, and it goes back to the, the ripple effects and the step-by-step -step analysis, right? That if you can't run your business, okay, you still have to pay your bills and you still have to get food somehow. So what do you do? Well, you can sell a few resources, maybe you can rent them out, maybe you can do something, other things, and then you fire uh, the people who used to work for you because you can't pay their wages, then they might go somewhere else, right? They might even move to a different part of the country. If they uh, can find jobs. Right, exactly. Or they're on unemployment and they might need to get rid of their apartment or sell their house or something like that, right? So they will move into their family members who are in a different state. Well, then they're not coming back because they can't just move back like nothing happened uh, just because you say, well, I'm going to hire you at your same, same salary as before. And you say, well, I don't have a house. I don't yeah. have anything anymore, right? I'm, I'm in a different state. What am I going to do? So all of these things happen, and they change the allocation of resources. So you say, I mean, it's, I hate using that term because it's, it, it's everything, right? It's people human capital and, and all their skills and expertise and then it's different types of cars and machines and buildings and and space itself and all this stuff stuff right but but all of those things get reallocated to where they can do most good because that's that's what drives the economy right that, that you're trying to find it, it goes back to action again right this employee who loses her job and then can't pay her bills sells the house, moves into relatives, well, always acting towards the best possible outcome, right? And then rolling it back doesn't mean that it's the same outcome. Mm -hmm. So it might be very different because they're in a different situation. Now you're in a different situation and this supply chain, well, that might be different too. And uh, the poor guy who had the business, he had probably invested in very specialized machinery that that he then uh, probably attached to the wall in his factory and whatnot. So he can't just sell it to someone else. It can't just be moved to some other factory. So you have all these frictions and everything has to be reallocated to where they can do more good. And it takes a lot of time and it's a very costly process. And, and this is sort of, a, this is a core to the Austrian theory of the business cycle, uh, which we haven't talked about, but that's probably where what Austrians are most well-known for, I guess. Do you outside. want to give an o overview of that real quick? Yeah, because it, it's basically what we talked about, right? So uh, it starts with, with uh, 
the, the expansion of credit. So if you just create more money in, in the banks, for instance, you, you create more money to be lent to others. So with this credit expansion, there's more money floating around, which lowers the interest rates and more entrepreneurs in, find that their, their envisioned uh, projects uh, seem more uh, profitable now because the interest rate is lower, so you can borrow money at, at lower uh, interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. Well, whoever gets that money first gets to spend all this new cash at low price at old prices, right? Because prices have not adjusted just because you get a loan. So whoever gets it first, which is usually Wall Street, right? That's where money ends up first because that's the whole finance sector. Yeah. So they get the money first and they get to buy a lot of stuff. So you see usually an asset bubble or the stock market just goes through the roof because all the new money ends up there. And then they buy something or they invest in a certain industry that's some kind of herd mentality or whatever they, they think has more promise, say housing. So prices start to go up in housing, so that attracts a lot of people there and all the money goes there. And that means that a lot of contractors are going to say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to build more houses because this is a really hot market right now because I can make money off of doing that. Okay, so they do that. And, and every time uh, money sort of shifts to a, a new industry, the prices are bid up and then shifts to the next one, right? So this sort of Cantillon effect means that whoever gets the money last, which is usually, I mean, to use sort of a rhetorical device, Wall Street gets it first, Main Street gets it last, Workers. Right. So whoever, yeah, and especially if you're on a fixed income, mm. right, because those get adjusted last because they get adjusted for the inflation that happened, right? And then workers, too, uh, their salaries are not adjusted until very late in this process. So they get to pay for food and gasoline and cars and rent and whatnot else that's already adjusted to all this new money in circulation, but their wages have not. So they're losing, right? Because had, had both gone up by the same percentage at once, it would be plus, zero, plus minus zero, right? No difference. But now their prices they're paying go up, and the, the money they're earning does not until much later, which means they're losing. So in a sense, that is redistribution of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street, right? Because Wall Street can take advantage of all this new um, cheap money Right. And buy resources at old prices that are lower. Yeah. And so that's. They, yeah. Well, sorry to interrupt. I, I was to say. So that's what the Fed is doing right now, with all of these special vehicles that they're using to bail out, you know, depressed assets. Uh, basically, the, the debt markets they're they're supporting, and just because of the chain in which the money is going to get transferred, it's it's going to end up in in the hands of these large businesses that have all of these assets um, that they're worried about, you know, the Chinese acquiring or whatever, uh, before it ever makes its way down to, you know, the little people, so to speak. Exactly. That's how, how they solved, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, the Great Recession too, right? They've been pumping out new money ever since. Uh, and, and that, of course, means that whoever gets it first, they get a greater chance at buying resources and whoever gets it last well, they have to give up their resources to basically cover the cost, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the, the problem here is that new money, well, that creates a lot of economic activity. I mean, the stock market goes up. There's an asset 
bubble or a boom, right? Prices go up and it, it gives the illusion that we're much better off because, hey, all the numbers are looking great. The people are making money like crazy, at least some, right? And prices have not adjusted or, uh, yet, so we don't really see the downside and we don't see the losses all that much either because we might see that later on as sort of urbanization or, or uh, like the Rust Belt where manufacturing just disappears slowly, right, factory mm -hmm. by factory. So we, have, we don't see that yet. Instead, we see all these new investments, all these new businesses, and, and all this economic growth, right? Because GDP goes up, too. Well, the problem is that they're all investing using all this new money that is cheaper than before. In, we're using prices that have not adjusted yet, which mm -hmm. means all of these entrepreneurial projects, they are based on uh, the assumption that they can get enough resources, to get products into the hands of consumers. The problem is that there's more money than there, the prices show that there are resources, right? So in a sense, they are investing a lot of stuff and we don't have all of that stuff, but we're not gonna notice yet because you can still redistribute resources, right? So mm -hmm. down the line, we're gonna find out that, wait a minute, there's not enough, which means that Going back to the socialist calculation debate and economic calculation, entrepreneurs will bid over each other and prices for factors will go up, right? And they will go up so much that some entrepreneurs go, well, I, I can't cover my costs when prices are this high. So I, I, I go out of business. So for Austrians, this sort of artificial boom turns into a bust because the boom itself is unsustainable. It was an illusion created by just printing new money to, that's how it's usually um, expressed online. But I mean, it's yeah. credit, credit expansion, right? So the bust is not a problem in itself. The bust is sort of the correction that ha happens or the, the implication of the artificial boom. Mm -hmm. So the difference between Austrians and others is that Austrians' business cycle theory is a theory of the whole cycle. It starts with an unsustainable boom that ends in a bust, and then we can sort of start again. Whereas most other theories, they're just theory of the bust. So mm. um, very often they would say, oh, well, a boom is great. And if it's an artificial or unsustainable boom, doesn't matter. We'll just build another boom on top of it when it when it bursts, right? Which is basically what we did with the Great Recession. That, whoops, the housing market and everything imploded. Let's print more money and make sure that the stock market goes up again and then we'll get some more asset bubbles going and then everything seems fine. And let's just hope so everything... Fake it till you out. make it. Right. <laughs> and Austrians would say, well, there are actually real resources here too. It's not only the numbers. And we don't have more resources just because we have more money. Right? So prices are the connection between resources we have and the money we have. But by printing more money, that link uh, is severed. So the right. prices do not anymore correspond to the relationship between money and resources. And that's the problem. And then, of course, the solution is not to print even more money. The solution is to let the market naturally correct and for the for the bust to happen when it's supposed to happen 
Yeah, yeah, in a sense it is. I mean, and and uh, and let the correction happen as swiftly as possible, right? So in a sense, leave it to entrepreneurs to make those investments necessary uh, and not force them to go through a bunch of hoops and make it hard for them to make the investments or sell off their resources or whatever it is, right? So one example that Austrians point to very often is the uh, the depression of 1921, because that was uh, a boom and a bust, but no one politically did anything really to correct it. So it was over in six to 12 months, something like that, right? But then the big bust in 1929, they did a whole lot trying to fix it, and that thing lasted until World War II. So the Great Depression is, is according to Austrian business cycle theory, the Great Depression became a long-lasting depression because it was an unsustainable boom, and then they tried to fix the correction and not go through the correction. So they extended um, all the hurt and all the suffering. Hmm. All right. Well, Per, uh, I'm not going to let you escape this interview without uh, addressing at least briefly the original um, topic on which we came to, to meet each other, which is this issue of patents. Uh, now that we've thoroughly gone through the Austrian perspective, and I have a little bit of a better idea of where you're coming from uh, and how you think about these, these topics, uh, I'm just going to, I guess, get started on it um, rather bluntly here. Uh, what is the problem with patents? Well, there are plenty of problems with patents. Uh, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> I... yeah, the, the main problem for me is the entrepreneurship problem, right? Because when I teach entrepreneurship and whenever you try to start a business and whatnot else, it's really your job to try to figure out how to best please consumers and how to make money off of it, mm -hmm. right? So, um, of course, we, we do advise uh, anyone to seek a patent if they can, but the entrepreneurial problem is always to figure out, well, is there consumer demand for my product? Meaning, will people be willing and able to pay enough for my product to cover my cost? And will what I offer provide them with enough value so that they will they will pick my product over other people's products, right? Mm -hmm. uh, patents basically says that, well, picking over other people's products, no one else can produce similar products, not until decades into the future, right? Which means that if the, the customer is at all interested in your product, what matters is only that they're interested in the product. It doesn't matter how well you uh, provide it to them. Right, so in a sense, you can you can adopt high cost um, production and logistics and whatever else, and you can have a price that is higher uh, than otherwise would be the case. Mm. Whereas you should, as an entrepreneur, figure out a business model where where you can make sure that customers realize that your product has so much more value than someone else's product, right? Now, there are, there are more pro problems with patents, too. Um, I mean, one, one often used argument for patents is that why would anybody invest in re research and development and innovations yes. if they couldn't benefit from it? Well, that's the business model again, right? That's always the problem for any entrepreneur, try to figure out how can they benefit from it themselves? How can they charge for this? 
Uh, and very often there are business models that you can use for these uh, patents. And also we should not forget that because the patent is in a sense a subsidy, because it, give, it gives you monopoly rights to sell whatever it is you're, you come up with and get a patent for, mm. it means that it's uh, an incentive for people to seek more investment than they otherwise should. Right? And this goes back to our discussion before, where we have we only have these resources. How can we produce the best, the most valuable outcome as possible for consumers with these resources? Well, patents would tell entrepreneurs that, well, innovate with stuff stuff that is patentable, because then you can extract uh, profit from it. Which sure. then also means do not invest in non-patentable goods because those are much harder to make money off of because they're not subsidized. Right? So you're shifting uh, investments from things that would benefit consumers potentially more to what is patentable because that's easier. Mm. So you, you have overinvestment in some things and underinvestment in other things. Well, that's a, a systemic malinvestment. Right, and that's not to the benefit of, of consumers. So okay. I, I think that is a huge problem, and we, we see that in, in in big pharma, for instance, right there, where they have one, one drug that sells like crazy because well, they basically send doctors on vacation and whatnot. Also, they're pre they're prescribing it to everybody, yes. right? And then then their their uh, patent is about to expire. Well, what do they do? They invest a lot of resources in figuring out just a tweak to it so that basically they can renew the patent on pretty much the same drug. Right? It's not exactly the same, but it's sort of the same, and it's close enough that no one else can compete with them. And this new drug, well, it's new, and they can raise the price, mm -hmm. and they can sort of just sit there, sit back and relax and get all the profits from it. Well, that doesn't benefit consumers at all. You already had the drug, and now you have a small tweak of it so that this big corporation can make millions and billions of dollars off of patients just because they want to keep the patents. And that, that investment is completely wasteful because they should have instead used that money to try to find a cure for something else that we don't have a cure for. Instead, we got a new version of this same old drug. Right. Right, so there are plenty of inefficiencies and waste uh, due to this system. And, I mean, for me as an entrepreneurship uh, professor, the, the big problem is the entrepreneurship aspect. That Entrepreneurs are in the business of figuring out how to uh, provide consumers with something that consumers value and do so while covering the costs. So, right. so um, I have many, many thoughts on this, but I'll try to keep it concise because I think uh, I should let you go soon here. Um, the I'll, I'll just bring up one example here. So, so, so a few examples. One, one thing is I think um, the story that gets told, at least in um, if you're in the patent business is, or that everyone even remembers from like elementary school or whatever, is, you know, you have these individuals like, let's say Nikola Tesla, for example, you know, mm -hmm. after whom Tesla is named after is, uh, you have the inventors who, uh, you know, maybe they're on their own They're they might be incorporated, but they're not associated with any large organization that has a ton of capital or institutional power. 
and they invent something and then someone like, you know, uh, Edison comes along, <laughs> let's say, and, uh, just sort of takes that, right. They, they mm-hmm. take that intellectual property, um, and they, they implement it. And because not necessarily their, uh, I mean, I think you would argue that they, they have constructed a better business model around it than necessarily the inventor did. But because of the fact that they have a lot of capital, maybe they have built up uh, resources elsewhere that allowed them to deploy that invention much quicker, get it to the market faster, better, et cetera. Um, we view that as, oh, well, that, that, the, the profits from that were stolen from the original inventor because the person who just copied the invention, uh, they didn't actually put in any of the time or the resources into, into doing the original research. They just said, oh, that's a really cool thing that you've come up with there. Let me go sell that. Mm-hmm. And the, the Tesla Edison example is purely hypothetical, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the problem there is that patents do not really um, uh, help the, the little guy, right? Very often it's, it's big of corporations that can get those patents. That's so, why I said it's a story. It's a- Right. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people believe it, right? So they, they believe that it's the, the little guy with the great idea. Um, who, who benefits from, from patents because they have something powerful that they can use uh, when big corporations try to copy their ideas. So the, uh, the, the number one patent troll in the world, by the way, is, is Apple. Um, just, they're, they're just notorious for abusing people and filing um, trivial patents all the time um, and really through litigation just kind of bullying people out of being able to conduct business. Right, which is something you can do if you just have uh, enough cash and then you have your own litigation department and then you just sue people left and right. right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you're an, an, a lone inventor, you can't do that. You, you have no idea how to do it either. Right? So those costly processes, in a sense, this is creating a guild for the big corporations using innovations right? because mm-hmm. they can keep others out. And in a sense, that's why the big uh, companies like Microsoft and Apple and those, they're buying up all these small innovative companies. Right. Because, because that's, that's how you, how you do business. And then of course, others adapt too. to again, go back to this, everything happens step by step. People are starting businesses in order to get bought by the giants, right? So that's a business model itself. <laughs> so exit. So it, yeah, so it, it, it changes everything in a sense, right? Um, but I mean, we should also recognize it's the difference between invention and innovation. Um, and I think Joseph Schumpeter, the old uh, economist who was a trained Austrian actually, but then became something else, uh, he, he distinguished between the two, saying that invention is the, the idea, the novelty in the idea, and innovation is bringing it to market. Right, so and those are two very different things, and it, with regards to entrepreneurship, people have the very wrong idea that it's the invention that matters, and it's not. Yes. If you ask if you ask any uh, experienced entrepreneur, well, entrepreneurship theorists too, uh, or just your patent attorney, they'll tell you your idea isn't worth anything. <laughs> Right, or, or that too. Right, it's the idea isn't worth anything at all. It's the implementation that matters. 
right? So, mm -hmm. and very often, I mean, we see this all the time throughout history that many good ideas that never turned out to be anything good, really, but then they were copied and emulated and several times, perhaps, and then they found sort of that, that kick-ass product that everybody bought. But the innovation was making the kick-ass product out of the idea, right? So one example I use when I'm teaching is the tablet, and everybody will think the iPad, right? Well, maybe a decade before the iPad, there was the tablet PC by, by Microsoft based off of Windows XP. Mm -hmm. right? A total flop. I've seen, I've seen those live in my life maybe twice. I mean, no one used those things, but they were probably, they were more powerful, they were probably more productive and whatnot else than, than especially the first iPad, right? And you could use like a, a pen and it had all the windows for the office package and all this stuff. But no one used it because Microsoft did a terrible job communicating why they would want a screen you could write on and why this was better than any other uh, PC. Whereas Apple did a great job in what is really a, a worse product, technologically speaking, but in, in sort of packaging this for the market and showing that, hey, this is a pretty cool and neat gadget, right? This is for, I mean, the, the purpose of using it changed too, right? Because for Microsoft it was, or you can hold the PC in your hand and use it productively in your business to the iPad where it was basically, hey, look at this, you can watch Netflix. Mm -hmm. Different purpose, but the same gadget. But the innovation was figuring out that, no, this people don't want it in the workplace. They don't want it productively in the business. They want it to consume entertainment, right? And that that, that is a whole lot more than just taking exactly the same thing and saying that, oh, let's, let's just uh, communicate this differently. Because of course they innovated or invented a lot of stuff um, in the device too, right? And it was thinner and the screen was better and all this other stuff, right? So plenty of those things. But putting all these pieces together in a very different way so that it, it actually meets uh, consumers' wants. And that's really what is important because very often there are basically no ideas that are completely novel. They're always building off of something we knew from before, right? But what is novel is packaging it, uh, formulating a message, communicating it to consumers, and giving them a, sort of a taste of what their lives could be like if they have this gadget, this thing. And, and that's the big innovation, and that's where most entrepreneurs uh, tend to go wrong uh, because they don't think of this. They, they think that, oh, I have this great idea for a product, uh, so I'll just build it and then they will come, right? So they mm -hmm. will see how great this is. And of course, that's a great way of failing. So Yeah, I got a marketplace podcast. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, most entrepreneurs, unfortunately, they don't, they don't realize this, that what they need to do is talk to their their customers and figure out what exactly are they looking for and what can I contribute to their lives? Mm. Right? And how, how, can I, how can I serve them to serve myself? Right? That's, that's the big issue. And how can I make sure that they realize that what I'm offering is, is of value to them? That's the, yeah. big, that's the big entrepreneurial question. And people unfortunately have, have the view that entrepreneurship is just about having this great idea because they're, they're looking at... at um, 
those unicorn businesses that seem like a great idea, that seem like they were the first ones and everything, right? Like Facebook, oh man, if I had thought of Facebook. Well, they weren't the first ones to have sort of a, a contact phone book online. Mm. There were other examples of that too. They just didn't do it right and the timing was wrong and all this other stuff, right? So that's where patents and that whole system goes wrong too, that it, it, it excludes that important part, right? It protects the invention and sort of overrides the invention, innovation. And so taking it to market is not as important anymore because you don't have competitors, which means you can assume all these other costs and you can just try stuff a little bit and it's not as urgent. You don't have to be as diligent, which is waste for the economic system overall and therefore a loss to consumers. All right. Well, Per, thank you so much for uh, coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was quite enlightening. Um, uh, I'd be happy to have you back sometime if we uh, decide to do this again. Um, you can find uh, Per's work and more information about him at perbyland.com. Uh, anything else before we let you go here? No, I really enjoyed this discussion, and there's plenty more. I mean, Austrian economics is, is about 150 years old, uh, so 150 years of theorizing, so there's plenty, plenty, plenty to talk about there. And I think it explains the, what, what is actually going on in the economy really well. Yeah, well, and hopefully we recover from this situation sooner rather than later. Let's hope so. All right, have a good day. Thank you, you too. Bye.